Welcome to TalkCast, the beginning of infinity, chapter 15, the evolution of culture, and now the section on dynamic societies and more about memes, anti-rational and rational memes. In the last part, we talked primarily about static societies, the conditions under which things go wrong and cause societies to cease making progress. Therefore, we have stasis. And the key driver of stasis, of static societies, are these things called anti-rational memes. Anti-rational memes are those ideas which disable the holder's critical faculties. They actively prevent people from thinking of new ideas. And therefore, if everyone in society possesses those same kind of memes, the entire society grinds to a halt in terms of its progress, which causes it to cease making progress across all domains, scientific, moral, spiritual, aesthetic. There ceases to be optimism that things can improve and the society becomes pessimistic. So here, when we get into a discussion, as we're about to, about dynamic societies, we are bringing together many threads from the beginning of infinity. This idea of good explanations, which enable us to transform the world that we live in. This idea of optimism, where we believe that all evils are due to a simple lack of knowledge. And if only, simple, I say simple, but if only we could create the knowledge, then we can solve those problems which are evil, which are causing us suffering or whatever else happens to be a problem for us at any particular point in time. So the idea, in some sense, the idea of a static society is, in many ways, easier to appreciate because the vast majority of societies that have ever existed have been static. And as a consequence, they've typically gone extinct. And even if they haven't been perfectly static, they've been unable to make progress in time. They've been able to, unable to solve certain problems in time. And so therefore, the society itself has gone extinct in one way or another. As David has said in many places, we can be the exception to this rule. At the moment, we are the exception to this rule. Our culture is one of criticism, which is a very unusual thing. Traditions, traditionally, are those things that remain the same in a society over time. And in our society, what is different is that our tradition is one where we have constant change, a tradition of criticism, a tradition of being able to find the faults and flaws, weaknesses and improvements in our existing ideas and institutions and so on. And for this reason, we're a dynamic society. For this reason, we are able to have ongoing progress, which is sufficiently fast, but also does not destabilize the society which is called dynamic, our society which is called dynamic. We manage to make progress without falling apart. There can be all sorts of changes a society could undergo, which could, in many ways, destabilize the society. This is when we have revolutionary type change, and that could cause the society to go extinct. So it in a sense, might not be static because there could be change going on, but it's not change for the better. It's change for the worse. And in that sense, we can throw all of those kind of societies into the one bin, into the one bin of being not a dynamic society in the way that David Deutsch is about to explain. So let's just go to the book. And David writes, subtitled Dynamic Societies. But our society, the West, is not a static society. It is the only known instance of a long-lived dynamic, rapidly changing society. 
It is unique in history for its ability to mediate long-term, rapid, peaceful change and improvement, including improvements in the broad consensus about values and aims as I described in Chapter 13. This has been made possible by the emergence of a radically different class of memes which, though still selfish, are not necessarily harmful to individuals. To explain the nature of these new memes, let me pose the question. What sort of meme can cause itself to be replicated for long periods in a rapidly changing environment? In such an environment, people are continually being faced with unpredictable problems and opportunities. Hence, their needs and wishes are changing unpredictably too. How can a meme remain unchanged under such a regime? The memes of a static society remain unchanged by effectively eliminating all the individual's choices. People choose neither which ideas to acquire nor which to enact. Those memes also combine to make the society static, so that people's circumstances vary as little as possible. But once the stasis has been broken, and people are choosing, they will choose, in part, according to their individual circumstances and ideas. In which case, memes will face selection criteria that vary unpredictably from recipient to recipient, as well as over time. Just pausing there, just my very brief reflection. Again, this idea which is so important and central to David Deutsch's philosophy of civilization, for want of another term, is this idea that we can have certain things remaining the same in an environment which is changing rapidly. So there must be certain ideas or memes that our society possesses that remain stable over time, despite everything else in the society, more or less, changing completely. And one of those is this idea of respect for criticism. This idea that nothing should be dogmatically held. Of course, people in a dynamic society will embrace certain dogmas. They will regard certain things as holy or beyond criticism. But not an overwhelming majority of people, and there won't be legal structures in a society that prevent criticism, even of those deeply held beliefs, so to speak. Okay, let's continue. And David writes, To be transferred to a single person, a meme need seem useful only to that person. To be transferred to a group of similar people under changing circumstances, it need be only a parochial truth. But what sort of idea is best suited to getting itself adopted many times in succession by many people who have diverse, unpredictable objectives? A true idea is a good candidate, but not just any truth will do. It must seem useful to all those people. For it is they who will be choosing whether to enact it or not. Useful in this context does not necessarily mean functionally useful. It refers to any property that can make people want to adopt an idea and enact it, such as being interesting, funny, elegant, easily remembered, morally right, and so on. And the best way to seem useful to diverse people under diverse, unpredictable circumstances is to be useful. Such an idea is, or embodies, a truth in the broadest sense. Factually true, if it is an assertion of fact. Beautiful, if it is an artistic value or behaviour. Objectively right, if it is a moral value. Funny, if it is a joke, and so on. The ideas with the best chance of surviving through many generations of change are truths with reach. Deep truths. People are fallible. They often have preferences for false, shallow, useless or morally wrong ideas, but which false ideas they prefer differs from one person to another and changes with time. Under changed circumstances, a specious falsehood or a parochial truth can survive only by luck. 
But a true deep idea has an objective reason to be considered useful by people with diverse purposes over long periods. For instance, Newton's laws are useful for building better cathedrals, but also for building better bridges and designing better artillery. Because of this reach, they get themselves remembered and enacted by all sorts of people, many of them vehemently opposed to each other's objectives over many generations. This is the kind of idea that has a chance of becoming a long-lived meme in a rapidly changing society. In fact, such memes are not merely capable of surviving under rapidly changing criteria of criticism. They positively rely on such criticism for their faithful replication, unprotected by any enforcement of the status quo or suppression of people's critical faculties. They are criticised, but so are their rivals, and their rivals fare worse and are not enacted. In the absence of such criticism, true ideas no longer have that advantage and can deteriorate or be superseded. Okay, pausing there, just my reflection on this. So here is the idea, central concept really, that the reason the useful ideas manage to survive, even though there's rapid change going on in the society more widely, is because rivals to the very useful, the very true ideas, are being criticised as well as the useful and true ideas being criticised. But those rivals fail to be replicated because they're rightly criticised, shown to be false, shown to be wanting in some way. And so they tend not to get replicated. But because the useful idea survives the process of criticism, that makes it more robust in a sense. It is able to weather the storms of criticism and everyone around can see that it's useful for doing useful stuff like building bridges and making better artillery in the case of Newton's laws. Okay, let's move on to rational and anti-rational memes which really gets to the heart of this particular matter. So I'll just get into reading it. Rational and anti-rational memes. Thus, Memes of this new kind, which are created by rational and critical thought, subsequently also depend on such thought to get themselves replicated faithfully. So I shall call them rational memes. Memes of the older static society kind, which survive by disabling their holders' critical faculties, I shall call anti-rational memes. Okay, already I'm going to pause there because clearly we're jumping in at a point where David is referring to something that he just said in the previous section. So I guess it's important that we reread that previous section. And he writes in the, the paragraph prior to this new section, such memes are not merely capable of surviving under rapidly changing criteria of criticism. They positively rely on such criticism for their faithful replication. Unprotected by any enforcement of the status quo or suppression of people's faculties, they are criticised. But so are their rivals, and the rivals fare worse and are not enacted. In the absence of such criticism, true ideas no longer have that advantage and can deteriorate or be superseded. And so what David is saying here is that the rational memes, this kind of idea, this kind of meme, survives not because of the, the suppression of critical faculties, but it thrives in an environment of criticism because the rivals are themselves criticised out of existence. They're refuted, leaving behind the rational memes. But of course, we're about to get to the key point here about anti-rational memes that manage to get, manage to get replicated despite criticism. Back to the book. Rational and anti-rational memes have sharpering, differing properties, originating in their fundamentally different replication strategies. 
They are about as different from each other as they are both from genes. If a certain type of hobgoblin has the property that, if children fear it, they will grow up to make their children fear it, then the behaviour of telling stories about that type of hobgoblin is a meme. Suppose it is a rational meme, then criticism over generations will cast doubt on the story's truth. In reality, there are no hobgoblins. The meme might evolve away to extinction. Note that it does not care if it goes extinct. Memes do what they have to do. They have no intentions even about themselves. But there are also other paths that it might evolve down. It might become overtly fictional. Because rational memes must be seen as beneficial by the holders, those that evoke unpleasant emotions are at a disadvantage. So it may also evolve away from evoking terror and towards, for instance, being pleasantly thrilling. Or else, if it's settled on a genuine danger, exploring practicalities for the present and optimism for the future. I pause there, my diversion, I suppose, here. Um, consider Halloween. Halloween's a perfect example of this. Uh, it's supposed to be a little bit scary, and I guess... Um, the Christian tradition of All Souls Day, um, thinking about the dead and various other traditions thinking about the dead, it's not all that pleasant. But Halloween has morphed into this, this more thrilling, exciting type celebration where kids get together and get to have lollies or candy and sweets and so on. Um, it wouldn't persist uh, in its present form and it wouldn't have persisted for so long if it wasn't pleasant. It, if it didn't have that thrilling sort of aspect, even though ostensibly it's supposed to be a scary kind of a thing and people are supposed to scare one another, but not terrify them. Uh, and as another related aside to this, uh, when it comes to talking about absolutely terrible memes that can be created and then take on a life of their own, um, well, I typically don't call out people on this podcast. It's not a thing that I do. I'm going to make an exception. I'm going to make an exception for the talk show host uh, in the USA, Jimmy Kimmel. Each year, for a number of years now, Jimmy Kimmel has, has had this Halloween show and this segment on his Halloween show where the humour is supposed to come from adults sending in videos to Jimmy Kimmel playing a prank on their children, their unsuspecting children, their innocent children, that all of their hard-earned, carefully collected over many hours on the night of Halloween, all of their candy that they've collected has been eaten by their parents. And you can look this up. I, I, I've sort of been two minds about promoting it. I don't really want to promote it. I think it's absolutely a terrible idea. I think many people who watch it um, can barely get through the segment because it's disturbing. It's public child abuse. Many people wouldn't see it in those terms. Of course they won't, because we still exist in this culture of memes that says it's okay to cause a child to cry. Now, telling a child that the candy that they have collected on Halloween has all been eaten by mum and dad as a joke is kind of like, I suppose, the bank. The bank ringing up the parents and saying, um, excuse me, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, very sorry about this. The bank's finances are in disarray and the only way that we can keep the bank afloat is to call in all the mortgages. So unless you can pay off your $400,000 mortgage right now, we're taking the house and you have two weeks to vacate and hanging up the phone, telling you you have no legal recourse. That's approximately, I guess, 
a similar sensation that would be evoked in the parents as the children, the parents would be extremely upset, extremely disturbed, emotionally violated in many ways. And it wouldn't be funny if the bank rang back in 10 minutes and said, April Fools, just joking. But with children, you know, their equivalent of money, if they don't have any, is the candy, something they've worked hard for over many hours. Uh, so why this continues to be a segment on Jimmy Kimmel, despite many, many people uh, informing him that it's a form of abuse, he shouldn't be promoting it, he shouldn't be laughing at these children, it is a bad thing, he persists with it. Uh, and he persists with it because the culture is saturated in this stuff. Uh, a child hurts themselves and we're supposed to laugh. Um, now, of course, schadenfreude is a real thing. We found a friend for you to play with. And honey, where have you been? Ha ha! Ha ha! Ha ha! You know, someone trips over in the street, some people's first impulse is to laugh. I think that's kind of unfortunate at times. There are certainly funny YouTube clips you can see where people are deliberately doing things silly, deliberately running the risk of causing themselves injury. Something goes wrong and it is kind of funny because they've brought it upon themselves. But when people don't bring these things upon themselves, I, for one, don't tend to find humour in it. Like if if um, they're actually suffering, if it's not merely tripping over and causing them no pain and it's just a funny way in which someone falls, okay, that can be funny. If someone trips over and breaks their leg and is laying on the ground suffering, that's not funny. They're hurt. And emotional hurt is the same kind of thing. So when people hurt children in this way, as Jimmy Kimmel does, and I guess to make given that this has become a bit of a rant now, I'm going to have to put up uh, uh, some vision of this, of, of what you're looking for if you want to look for it. I think it's a, a terrible mistake, and it's a terrible mistake for parents to do this. And the reason it's a terrible mistake is even ignoring the idea that you're laughing and finding joy in the pain of your child, the actual literal mental anguish of your child, putting that aside, it teaches your child a particular lesson. It teaches them that mum and dad cannot be trusted anymore. That when mum and dad say something, it just might not be true. They just might be playing a trick on you. You can't be trusted. Now, for many of us with friends, that's fine. That's par for the course. But with your parents, I think a different set of rules apply, especially when they're younger. Um, I should mention that, um, that Jimmy Kimmel this year claims, if you look at his 2020 video, that he didn't do it this year. And I thought, great. As I began to watch the segment, I thought, great, he's not doing it anymore. Within 10 seconds, he says, although we're not doing it this year, parents nonetheless still played the prank. And so we're going to show the videos anyway. So he still did it this year anyway. He still did it this year. So this is an example of where even though Jimmy Kimmel decided he wasn't going to do this thing, maybe he had good second thoughts about it, it's now taken on a life of its own. And so now there is this practice throughout the United States where unsuspecting innocent children who know nothing about Jimmy Kimmel and nothing about this kind of prank collect their sweets, collect their candy, and then the following day, morning, whenever, they wake up to find the candy missing and mum and dad telling them that all the candy is gone permanently because it's all been eaten. 
uh, I think this needs to stop. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but I actually think for those children, it is a big deal and it should be stopped. And I think that next year, the best thing that Jimmy Kimmel could do is not run the segment and apologize for having ever run the segment. The year after that, he could possibly track down every child that was ever involved in the segment and reward them in some way and apologize to them and make them feel a little bit better and say that he won't do this sort of thing again. Uh, <laughs> I sound like a terrible school teacher, but <laughs> I think that sometimes atonement needs to be done when people do the wrong thing. And I think Jimmy Kimmel is doing the wrong thing with this segment. He's creating a new meme and it's not going anywhere good. All right. After that um, wild deviation, let's go back to the book. And David writes, Now suppose it is an anti-rational meme. Evoking unpleasant emotions will then be useful in doing the harm that it needs to do. Namely, disabling the listener's ability to be rid of the hobgoblin and entrenching compulsion to think and therefore to speak of it. The more accurately the hobgoblin's attributes exploit genuine, widespread vulnerabilities of the human mind, the more faithfully the anti-rational meme will propagate. If the meme is to survive for many generations, it is essential that its implicit knowledge of these vulnerabilities be true and deep. But its overt content, the idea of the hobgoblin's existence, need contain no truth. On the contrary, the non-existence of the hobgoblin helps to make the meme a better replicator because the story is then unconstrained by the mundane attributes of any genuine menace, which are always finite and to some degree compatible. And that will be all the more so if the story can also manage to undermine the principle of optimism. Thus, just as rational memes evolve towards deep truths, anti-rational memes evolve away from them. Pause there, my reflection. Um, yeah, okay, just to remind people, especially if people dip in and out of these episodes um, at certain points. David mentions the principle of optimism, the principle of optimism there. The principle of optimism is that all evils are due to insufficient knowledge. And so, um, well, actually, I'm going to include that uh, in my introduction to the philosophy of David Deutsch, part two. I'll talk more about the principle of optimism there. But suffice it to say for now that if you believe that certain problems cannot be solved, then that is a kind of anti-rational meme. It's an undermining of this principle of optimism, which says that all evils are due to lack of knowledge or insufficient knowledge, which is a special case in my view, of this idea that problems are soluble, given that evil is just another kind of problem. And if you knew, if you had the knowledge, then you'd be able to fix that thing, whatever the evil happens to be. Evil might be a certain disease. It might be a particular virus. And that evil, which is causing a lot of harm, is only not solved due to the lack of knowledge. If we were able to solve it, and we can solve it, given the right knowledge, then the evil would be destroyed, we would be rid of it. And the principle of optimism says that all such evils, whether they be viruses, bacteria, hurricanes, earthquakes, whatever, in order to get rid of the evil part of them, but the damaging part, the harmful part, the bit that causes suffering, we need to create the knowledge in order to do so. And that's always possible with sufficient effort, creativity, and so forth. So just to very briefly recap, we have two types of memes, rational and anti-rational, and two kinds of replication strategies. On the one hand, with the rational memes, it thrives in an environment of criticism because all of its rivals are criticized and refuted. 
shown to be false in some way, shown to be lacking in some way, leaving it as the survivor. So it's an evolutionary type process. The anti-rational memes, on the other hand, disable critical faculties and so prevent themselves from being criticized. And so they survive for that reason, because they, they themselves are not criticized, unlike with the rational memes, which are, but survive the process of criticism. So they're your two kinds of memes, and they're your two kinds of replication strategies. So back to the book, and David says, as usual, mixing the above two replication strategies does no good. If a meme contains true and beneficial knowledge for the recipient, but disables the recipient's critical faculties in regard to itself, then the recipient will be less able to correct errors in that knowledge, and so will reduce the faithfulness of transmission. And if a meme relies on the recipient's belief that it is beneficial, but it is not in fact beneficial, then that increases the chance that the recipient will reject it or refuse to enact it. Similarly, a rational meme's natural home is a dynamic society, more or less any dynamic society, because there the tradition of criticism, optimistically directed at problem solving, will suppress variants of the meme with even slightly less truth. Moreover, the rapid progress will subject these variants to continually varying criteria of criticism, which again, only deeply true memes have a chance of surviving. An anti-rational memes natural home is a static society, not any static society, but preferably the one in which it evolved, for all the converse reasons, and therefore each type of meme, when present in a society that is broadly of the opposite kind, is less able to cause itself to be replicated. Pause there, my reflection. Okay, there's that grand discovery that uh, has been mentioned many times before on this podcast and uh, hinted at throughout the book. A rational meme is, is to a dynamic society as an anti-rational meme is to a static society. Now, this is not to say that all memes in dynamic societies are rational, far from it, or that all memes in static societies are anti-rational, again, far from it. There's a mix, but when those anti-rational memes reach some threshold within a particular society, then that can cause the accelerate, like in our society, we've got an accelerating rate of progress, as people often are fond of saying. If the anti-rational memes tend to get more and more of a foothold, then that rate of accelerating progress will slow. Eventually, the increase in progress itself will slow, it will stagnate, and eventually you'll get regression. And once you have regression, then what you can expect is extinction of the society or the civilization. So anti-rational memes are those things that actively prevent progress because they actively prevent one and people in society from criticizing the ideas they have. And if you can't criticize the ideas you have, you're not going to improve the ideas you have. Things are going to remain the same. And in fact, what generally happens is because the problems keep on coming, but no new solutions are being developed, you actually start to regress. You start to go backwards because your society is staying the same, but the environment around you continues to evolve. You're still going to be plagued by all the awful slings and arrows that the earth tends to throw at you and the rest of the cosmos, mind you. So there almost is no such thing as a society, a static society remaining the same throughout time. It will decline. Eventually it will disappear altogether. Now, on the other hand, a dynamic society can weather some degree of anti-rational memes. People, individuals, have a vast number of anti-rational memes operating on their mind at any one time. 
certain groups of people tend to have more anti-rational memes than others, or certain different kinds of anti-rational memes than others. But so long as these are corralled in some way, controlled by the institutions, especially the democratic institutions of society, then we have some sort of defense, a bulwark against anti-rational memes causing stasis in a society. So what I mean by this is um, religious communities can have certain anti-rational memes. Secret societies can have certain anti-rational memes. Um, people's homes can develop their own set of anti-rational memes in a particular family and so on and so forth. But so long as they're kind of corralled, fenced off into those smaller communities, then the wider society can, can protect itself, can tend to protect itself, if those anti-rational memes do not become part of the broader culture and certainly not enforced on the wider society through legislation or something like that. Now, one only has to turn to a society like North Korea, where anti-rational memes are actually legislated. They're actually put into the penal code. Uh, lots of countries historically have had this. I know a little bit about North Korea. If you criticize the leader, you will be thrown in jail. So you're not allowed to criticize the leader. There's literally no way of improving the leader from the community. There's no way of replacing the leader. It's not a democracy. And there's no way of even suggesting that there's some deficiency with the leader. So this is the worst kind, I would argue, of the anti-rational memes. Because anti-rational memes, dangerous though they are, tend to be most dangerous for their own holders. But your anti-rational memes typically aren't going to hurt me. They could, but they generally won't hurt me because there are other structures within society, institutions within society, that will prevent you from enforcing your terrible ideas onto me or telling me that I can't criticize you, for example. Although we see around the world governments drifting in certain ways, certain unfortunate ways, towards speech codes, towards a reluctance to allow any kind of speech. And this is, of course, a dangerous turn. Uh, and it should be resisted. It should be resisted because anything that says you're not allowed to criticize X, where X is anything at all, is an anti-rational meme. It's an anti-rational idea. It means that X is already in a perfect state. There's absolutely nothing that could possibly ever be said about X that could improve our understanding of X. And that is always wrong. Okay, another lengthy diversion. Let's go back to the book. And this section is titled The Enlightenment. Our society in the West became dynamic not through the sudden failure of a static society, but through generations of static society type evolution. Where and when the transition began is not very well defined, but I suspect that it began with the philosophy of Galileo and perhaps became irreversible with the discoveries of Newton. In meme terms, Newton's laws replicated themselves as rational memes and their fidelity was very high because they were so useful for so many purposes. So pausing there because this bears a little bit of emphasis. Um, Newton's laws were so useful. Newton's laws work. They solve problems. They allow us to create technologies to make predictions about the world. They improve our lives. They improve society. They make civilization a better place because now we can solve the problem of figuring out how to launch rockets. We can solve the problem of figuring out how to uh, explain the tides, so on and so forth. And 
And so they work because they're actually, they're saying something true about the world. Not perfectly true, but they're saying something true about the world. The idea that a solution to your problem works is a true statement. It's either true or false. Either your solution works or it doesn't work. I'm just emphasizing that because there is actually a school of thought that says, well, all we need to worry about is whether something works or not, not whether something is true or false. Uh, I happen to think that these ideas contain a, a certain amount of synonymous epistemic content, <laughs> to be technical, I suppose. Um, if something works, then it's saying something true about reality. There's something correct, something right. It's not false to say that that solution works for that particular problem. And so in the case of Newton, although we know, strictly speaking, it's false, which is just to say it is not in all its parts true. The conjunction of all the different assertions that it makes about the world is not true. Okay, There are aspects of it that are false. Um, and its, it's overall explanation of, for instance, um, the way in which physics works is false. But it doesn't mean that it's completely and utterly false. It's not completely and utterly useless. It's true to say it does solve some problems. And it solves some problems as well as anyone needs to have those problems solved. Um, so that's just a by the by. Because it solved problems, however, because it is able to solve problems and lots and lots of problems, it becomes a meme that is a rational meme, a set of memes that gets itself replicated over time. Why? Because it's so useful. Simple idea. Okay, skipping a very short part and then back to the book and David writes, in any case, following Newton, there was no way of missing the fact that rapid progress was underway. Though some philosophers, notably Jean-Jacques Rousseau, did try, but only by arguing that reason was harmful, civilization bad, and primitive life happy. Just uh, an aside. Don't we hear this often? It's, it's uh, anyone who uh, is uh, excited by the environmentalist movement tends to fall back on some version of this. Civilization is bad, primitive life good. Okay, let's keep going. There was such an avalanche of further improvements, scientific, philosophical, and political, that the possibility of resuming stasis was swept away. Western society would become the beginning of infinity or be destroyed. Nations beyond the West today are also changing rapidly, sometimes through the exigencies of warfare, with their neighbours, but more often, even more powerfully, by the peaceful transmission of Western memes. Their cultures, too, cannot become static again. They must either become Western in their mode of operation, or lose all their knowledge and thus cease to exist. A dilemma which is becoming increasingly significant in world politics. Pausing there, well, I really should mention North Korea again here. The DMZ, the demilitarized zone, this is the border between North and South Korea. So the, the DMZ, um, it was, it's an arbitrary line to a large extent. Um, it was uh, General Douglas MacArthur at the end of the Korean War in 1950 that almost more or less it was him who just arbitrarily drew a line between the North and the South. And it just so happened to be the case that the majority of the communist people were up in the North and the majority of the uh, democratic capitalist type people were in the South. But some capitalists got trapped in the North and some communists got trapped in the South. Uh, so it wasn't a good way of dividing things. And the history of why the 
communists were up in the north and the, the capitalists were down in the south. It stretches all the way back actually to Japan. And so this is one of the reasons why there is friction between the Japanese and the Koreans because the Koreans look to Japan as being one reason why their country was split for historical reasons. And that takes us off into an entirely different area away from the beginning of infinity. However, it the DMZ is a wonderful physical representation of the border between a static and a dynamic society, a more static and a more dynamic society, where you have certain anti-rational memes in the North, which do not obtain in the South. They don't exist in the South. South Korea has a tradition of removing, uh, typically without violence, its leaders. In North Korea, it is a hereditary dynasty now where you cannot remove the rulers uh, or if you remove even any of the people in the higher echelons of the North Korean Communist Party, it usually takes some amount of violence. They tend not to go peacefully. They certainly don't get voted out. And of course, it's not just the philosophical differences between the two. The philosophical differences are the deep foundational, I'm not a foundationalist, but they, they underlie, they underpin the reasons why, the explanation of why it is that North Korea is in the state that it is and that its people are in the state that it is. South Korea is a technological, artistic, scientific powerhouse around the world. For its size, it really does bat above its own weight. And certainly in technology, it's exceeded by very few other countries in terms of what it's achieved. Uh, clearly, the United States is first. If you were going to put something second, well, Samsung, LG, Hyundai, the list of technologically advanced companies and companies at the frontier of making advances in technology exist in South Korea. It's probably overtaken Japan by now. Now, why? Well, because it has this culture of free enterprise, capitalism, rational memes. It tries to avoid the anti-rational memes. North Korea is completely the opposite in almost every way. Any technology it does have is either stolen or a cheap ripoff of the technology from elsewhere. Most of its money, uh, where it doesn't generate it itself, is from charity from around the world, from people actually giving it food aid, um, uh, giving it cash aid, and so on. It's not because the United States is placing sanctions on it. It's not because other countries are treating North Korea badly. I would urge anyone who thinks that that's the reason why North Korean people are suffering to look deeply into the history of North Korea. North Korea has, the North Korean regime has brought it upon themselves. Now the people, of course, we should have great compassion for it. It is, a, it is largely a hostage situation. And we know this because people are desperate to escape from North Korea and do quite often into China and then from China they make their way south and South Korea welcomes them with open arms. No one is trying to go in the other direction. I, I, I should correct that. There are interesting handful of cases where people, not completely stable one would say, who do fight their way into North Korea and never leave again, uh, of course. Okay, whatever the case, we have clear real-world examples out there. North and South Korea are just one. Um, but where we can observe the effect 
of anti-rational memes upon a society, causing stasis to a greater or lesser degree, certainly retarding the progress within that society. And we can see places where we have very dynamic societies like South Korea that welcome criticism, challenging the status quo. Uh, there, there are still, I uh, should say, of course, in any of these traditional societies, South Korea is a, an excellent example of a Confucian society where there are absolutely anti-rational memes that operate. However, there are likewise, um, as we say, um, institutions within that society which enable criticism to flourish nonetheless and to ensure that peaceful are <laughs> and to ensure that people are able to peacefully cooperate one with another without fear that if they criticize the government or someone else they're going to be thrown in jail certainly nothing to the extent like what goes on in north korea anyway the point has been made i think back to the book and david writes even in the west the enlightenment today is nowhere near complete it is relatively advanced in a few vital areas. The physical sciences and Western political and economic institutions are prime examples. In those areas, ideas are now fairly open to criticism and experimentation and to choice and to change. But in many other areas, memes are still replicated in the old manner by means that suppress the recipient's critical faculties and ignore their preferences. When girls strive to be ladylike and to meet culturally defined standards of shape and appearance, and when boys do their utmost to look strong and not to cry when distressed, they are struggling to replicate ancient gender stereotyping memes that are still part of our culture, despite the fact that explicitly endorsing them has become a stigmatized behavior. Pause there, just my reflection. Um, this is um, an extremely interesting point to just dwell upon for a moment. David observes throughout the book a number of these kinds of ideas. Um, the ideas that no one really believes, but nonetheless continue to get replicated anyway. Um, he's he's going to write shortly, we're going to get to the bit shortly, where he talks about the because I say so idea. When parents say in response to a child who they're in a dispute with, because I say so, it's a weird kind of thing where the parent doesn't actually believe it, even though it's true. Now, David will explain it much better shortly. Um, uh, basically, it's when a, a, a parent has run out of patience. They lack the knowledge of how to be patient in that situation. They resort to, because I say so. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's just go back to the book. And he writes, Those memes have the effect of preventing vast ranges of ideas about what sort of life one should lead from ever crossing the holder's minds. If their thoughts ever wander in the forbidden directions, they feel uneasiness and embarrassment. And the same sort of fear and loss of centeredness as religious people have felt since time immemorial at the thought of betraying their gods. And their worldviews and critical faculties are left disabled in precisely such a way that they will, in due course, draw the next generation into the same pattern of thought and behaviour. So just pause there, my reflection. So I just want this to come down upon you if it's an, an idea that you've not encountered before especially if you're not a religious person, let's say, and there are certain religious practices where if the person does not engage in them, they feel this sort of shame and regret. And you might think, well, how could you uh, be so silly? 
Um, if you don't manage to make it to church on a Sunday uh, and you feel really guilty about that, uh, that's a strange sort of sensation. I couldn't imagine as an atheist what it must feel like to feel so guilty uh, to have not met the standards of my religion, that this imaginary God expects me to turn up to this building each and every Sunday and kneel before um, a figurine of that God. That must be a weird thing to feel guilt over not doing that or praying five times a day or so on and so forth for any religious practice that you might think is a bit of a bizarre one. But as David is saying here, we all feel this and you will know it when you feel any kind of uneasiness or embarrassment at transgressing any kind of social cultural practice. You have these memes operating, these anti-rational memes, this unwillingness to criticize, to a large extent, certain ideas that you have, even if they don't make much sense. <laughs> He's going to get to some examples uh, shortly, so let's just, uh, let's just wait for that. Back to the book. That anti-rational memes are still today a substantial part of our culture and of the mind of every individual is a difficult fact for us to accept. Ironically, it is harder for us than it would have been for the profoundly closed-minded people of earlier societies. They would not have been troubled by the proposition that most of their lives were spent enacting elaborate rituals rather than making their own choices and pursuing their own goals. On the contrary, the degree to which a person's life was controlled by duty, obedience, authority, piety, faith, and so on, was the very measure by which people judged themselves and others. Children who asked why they were required to enact onerous behaviours that did not seem functional would be told, because I say so. And in due course, they would give their children the same reply to the same question, never realising they were giving the full explanation. This is a curious type of meme, whose explicit content is true, though its holders do not believe it. Pause there. Repeating. And summarizing, because I say so, when parents say because I say so, this is a curious type of meme whose explicit content is true, though its holders do not believe it. Just cogitate on that for a moment, reflect on that for a moment. It's really interesting. When a parent says to a child, because I say so, the parent is generally thinking, well, this is not the reason actually why I'm expecting you to do this thing. Okay, for example, um, little Johnny's playing in the dirt. Johnny, get out of the dirt. Stop playing in the dirt. Why? Because I say so. Now, the parent probably thinks or has an idea in their mind, no, I've got a complex explanation to do with bacteria and disease, and this is why I want little Johnny to get out. But that's too hard to explain. I won't even attempt to explain it. So I'm going to say because I say so, which actually is the reason why. It's only because I say so. That other thing, that other stuff about, oh, the, it's full of disease and it's bad, you could explain that to the child. It's just that you're too lazy, you lack the patience, or perhaps you simply lack the capacity to conjure the words into an explanation that's appropriate for the child, if indeed you think that's true. But generally you don't think it's true. When a parent says because I say so, it's usually because they're at the end of their tether. They've run out of patience. They don't know, they don't have the knowledge of how to be more patient in that particular situation or to come up with a better explanation or to interact with their child in a better way. It is a general purpose 
criticism of the behavior of a child because I say so. Do what you're told. I'm the authority. Not a good way to deal with anyone, of course. So anyway, in summary, um, the because I say so thing is true. When, when a parent uses that, that's in fact the correct explanation. It really is. That really is why the child is being requested not to do something rather than some other more complicated, um, uh, correct explanation to do with the world. Uh, even though the parents don't believe that that's why the child needs to stop doing whatever they're doing. Okay, or do whatever they're supposed to be doing, according to the parent. Back to the book. Today, with our eagerness for change and our unprecedented openness to new ideas and to self-criticism, it conflicts with most people's self-image that we are still, to a significant degree, the slaves of anti-rational memes. Most of us would admit to having a hang-up or two, but in the main, we consider our behaviour to be determined by our own decisions and our decisions by our reasoned assessment of the arguments and evidence about what is in our rational self-interest. This rational self-image is itself a recent development of our society, many of whose memes explicitly promote and implicitly give effect to values such as reason, freedom of thought, and the inherent value of individual human beings. We naturally try to explain ourselves in terms of meeting those values. Obviously, there is truth in this, but it is not the whole story. One need look no further than our clothing styles and the way we decorate our homes to find evidence. Consider how you would be judged by other people if you went shopping in pyjamas or painted your home with blue and brown stripes. That gives a hint of the narrowness of the conventions that govern even these objectively trivial and inconsequential choices about style and the steepness of the social costs of violating them. Is the same thing true of the more momentous patterns in our lives, such as careers, relationships, education, morality, political outlook, and national identity? Consider what we should expect to happen when a static society is gradually switching from anti-rational to rational memes. Pause there, my reflection. So that should give you pause, as I like to say. Um, the, the social costs of violating these norms that you're expected to have a certain kind of career or a certain kind of relationship, engage in a certain kind of fashion, paint your house a certain colour, and that if any of these are violated, you feel, as David said earlier, the unease, the uncomfortableness, the embarrassment of, of violating these norms in any particular way. So we all know what the, the, the hardcore religious person feels like at times. If they are required to uh, partake in a particular practice which is in contravention to their deeply held religious convictions, we have that. All you would need to do is to paint your house bright pink or wear a particularly bright pink suit. Anything with bright pink seems to do it. <laughs> um, it's a violation of usual conventions. And, and so the point here that David's making is that we have to expect that any static society, a society that tends towards stasis, can only possibly move towards a dynamic society gradually, very gradually, incrementally, because it might be hard enough for you to violate norms about fashion, but then if you start violating all the other social norms, 
in your social circle, in your family and so on, then you will feel ever more uncomfortable with each social norm that you violate. Now, if you, if you repeat that for a large group of people for an entire society, then it really becomes an issue. As David says on this point about transitioning from the static society to the dynamic society, he writes, such a transition is necessarily gradual because keeping a dynamic society stable requires a great deal of knowledge. Creating that knowledge starting with only the means available in a static society, namely small amounts of creativity and knowledge, many misconceptions, the blind evolution of memes, and trial and error must necessarily take time. Moreover, the society has to continue to function throughout, but the coexistence of rational and anti-rational memes makes this transition unstable. Memes of each type cause behaviours that impede the faithful replication of the other. To replicate faithfully, anti-rational memes need people to avoid thinking critically about their choices, while rational memes need people to think as critically as possible. That means that no memes in our society replicate as reliably as the most successful memes of either a very static society or, and as yet hypothetical, fully dynamic society. This causes a number of phenomena that are peculiar to our transitional era. One of them is that some anti-rational memes evolve against the grain, towards rationality. An example is the transition from an autocratic monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, which has played a positive role in some democratic systems. Given the instability that I have described, it is not surprising that such transitions often fail. Another is the formation within the dynamic society of anti-rational subcultures, Recall that anti-rational memes suppress criticism selectively and cause only finely tuned damage. This makes it possible for the members of an anti-rational subculture to function normally in other respects. So such subcultures can survive for a long time until they are destabilised by the haphazard effects of reach from other fields. For example, racism and other forms of bigotry exist nowadays almost entirely in subcultures that suppress criticism. Bigotry exists not because it benefits the bigots, but despite the harm they do to themselves by using fixed, non-functional criteria to determine their choices in life. Present-day methods of education still have a lot in common with their static society predecessors. Despite modern talk of encouraging critical thinking, it remains the case that teaching by road and inculcating standard patterns of behaviour through psychological pressure are integral parts of education, even though they are now wholly or partly renounced in explicit theory. Moreover, in regard to academic knowledge, it is still taken for granted in practice that the main purpose of education is to transmit a standard curriculum faithfully. One consequence is that people are acquiring scientific knowledge in an anemic and instrumental way. Without a critical, discriminating approach to what they are learning, most of them are not effectively replicating the memes of science and reason into their minds. And so we live in a society in which people can spend their days conscientiously using laser technology to count cells in blood samples, and their evenings sitting cross-legged and chanting to draw supernatural energy out of the earth. Pause there, my reflection on a few little things here. Um, this issue about critical thinking in schools, yes, they're... There is modern talk of encouraging critical thinking. It is replete throughout syllabi and curricula around the world that educationalists, teachers are expected to inculcate cultures of critical thinking. But they never get the critical thinking right. They don't know what critical thinking is. They don't know what criticism is. Um, I've made videos about this. I'll, I'll, I'll link to those as well about 
critical thinking as it is, as it appears in education. People have very competing ideas, not all of which have anything to do with the kind of critical rationalism of Popper and David Deutsch. At best, it's a perversion of the whole concept of critical thinking. At worst, it's just another form of indoctrination about ways in which one shouldn't criticise the knowledge that is being fed to them via the standard curriculum. And yes, that, that last point there about um, people using laser technology to count cells in blood samples. In other words, people who are scientifically literate, and Sam Harris makes this point, people who are scientifically literate being nonetheless incapable of applying critical reasoning to other aspects of life. Um, this compartmentalizing of the uh, good thinking, <laughs> I guess, practices. Well, I think David would probably go even further than that to say that just because you're using laser technology to count cells in blood samples doesn't make you a scientific thinker. It doesn't make you a rational thinker. It might make you competent at using the piece of technology that is the laser technology, but that doesn't necessarily make you a good critical thinker. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says some wonderful things about this when it comes to UFO sightings. He talks about how the UFO sightings uh, can be high among pilots, they can be high among police officers, but they're not high among astronomers. Why? Because astronomers, when they look up, they kind of know what they're looking at. Neil Tyson makes the point that, and quite rightly, that other people in the broader community think that just because you've got a badge like a policeman, or you've got a license like a pilot, and you're in control of this very sophisticated piece of technology, that somehow, therefore, your brain, uh, your mind, your thinking abilities are at a level above the average person. But they need not necessarily be. It's a whole separate skill set to be able to be critical of your own thoughts, critical of your own observations, to not immediately leap to those lights in the sky are aliens visiting from a distant galaxy, so on and so forth. We think that because you have a badge or you're a pilot or you're whatever, that your testimony is somehow better than that of an average person. It's all bad because we're human, okay? So there was a police officer who was tracking a UFO that was swaying back and forth in the sky, okay? Reported on the, on the hot, they're in, a, in one of the, what do you call the car? The squad car chasing a UFO, and the UFO's moving back and forth like this, okay? Later it turned out the cop car was chasing Venus, and he was driving on a curved road. <laughs> but was so distracted by Venus, he thought Venus was the one moving, and he wasn't even thinking that he was doing this. So all this is just to say that we still exist in a culture which, in many ways, is very anti-critical. Uh, we have, I would argue, great deference to authority. Great deference to authority. Where it's not deference to religious authority, which um, I, I guess in some ways has the positive side of at least not deferring to people who believe in the supernatural, that, that kind of deference to authority was not replaced with a critical attitude towards lots of our knowledge and lots of the authorities, but rather was just transferred wholesale to replace the priest with the scientist or the priest with the politician or the priest with the expert. So the typical person in society is still looking upwards to the authority, to the one with the greater power, with the greater knowledge, 
so that they can give them answers in their own life for how to live their life and what to think and how to think. And the how to think, of course, often comes down to, well, listen to me, do what you're told, because I say so, kind of explanations from these people. And uh, many people object, uh, certainly when I've brought this kind of argument up, the objection comes, well, what do you expect me to do? To reason through all of these claims on my own? I have to believe the expert. I have to believe the scientist because I can't possibly understand what they understand. I have to defer to their greater authority in this area. I make a subtle shift. It's not, and David Deutsch makes this point in his first podcast with Sam Harris, the subtle shift is not in thinking that the expert has greater authority or claim to more perfect knowledge in that area. It's that you should expect, you should have a positive explanation, an understanding of how that expert in that particular domain of expertise has gone about acquiring the knowledge. Were the methods of error correction within that particular area up to the standards that you would expect or that you would want to use in that particular area? If the answer is ever no, then you shouldn't be deferring to that expertise. And either way, I distinguish myself between experts and authorities. An authority is someone who is deemed by the state via some ostensibly democratic process to have power over your life in some way. And if you agree to be in the democratically um, constituted society, then you defer to their authority. It doesn't mean that you have to obey without question. You can question, question authority. Don't reject authority. It's a dangerous thing to do, especially if the man has a badge and a gun. So you should question, but defer to the authority at certain times. But in other areas where the person is not an, an officially designated authority, but just claims expertise in a certain area, that doesn't give them authority. Okay? An authority is not an expert and vice versa. An authority might be very well someone who has almost no knowledge in the relevant area. For example, a police officer, uh, let's say, enforcing certain restrictions to do with preventing the spread of a virus, shouldn't be expected to be an expert in the transmission of viruses. But the police officer has a certain job to do, and so you should respect the authority of the police officer. And it's probably not much point even questioning the police officer. You shouldn't expect them to be an expert. So the authority isn't the expert. And on the other hand, if a particular doctor happens to think that the law should be um, even more strict than what it is to do with, let's say, locking down society, well, they might very well be an expert. They might even be a virologist, but that doesn't make them an authority. So people shouldn't turn to them and say, well, we have to obey this person. Well, no, that's not the way in which democratically constituted Western democracies work. That's not the way we do things. We listen to the experts, but then we have a number of competing, competing ideas about what kind of laws need to be put in place that the, that the cure or the treatment for this virus, let's say, using the contemporary example, it isn't worse than the disease itself. The cure shouldn't be worse than the, the disease. Of course, if you're an expert, one of the problems with expertise, the actual problem with expertise, is people becoming too narrowly focused on a particular area. If they become too narrowly focused on a particular area, 
They might be the world's greatest expert on brown coal-fired power stations, the world's greatest expert. But that doesn't therefore mean they need to be listened to about how wonderful brown coal can be for powering the world's economies, cheap though it is. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. There are many other considerations we need other than just listening to one person's narrow solution, which ignores the consequences for wider society. This is why we have democracies. This is why we have politicians who listen to experts and consider what the best explanation is, considering as many variables as they can, refuting certain poor ideas. Okay, <laughs> after another long rant, let's go back to the book. And the next section is titled, Living with Memes. Existing accounts of memes have neglected the all-important distinction between the rational and anti-rational modes of replication. Consequently, they end up missing most of what is happening and why. Moreover, since most obvious examples of memes are long-lived anti-rational memes and short-lived arbitrary fads, the tenor of such accounts is usually anti-meme. Even when these accounts formally accept that the best and most valuable knowledge also, con also consists of memes. For example, the psychologist Susan Blackmore in her book The Meme Machine attempts to provide a fundamental explanation of the human condition in, in terms of meme evolution. Now memes are indeed integral to the explanation for the existence of our species, though, as I shall explain in the next chapter, I believe that the specific mechanism she proposes would not have been possible. But crucially, Blackmore downplays the element of creativity both in the replication of memes and in their origin. This leads her, for example, to doubt that technological process is best explained as being due to individuals as the conventional narrative would have it. She regards it instead as meme evolution. She cites the historian George Basilar whose book, The Evolution of Technology, denies the myth of the heroic inventor. Pause there, my reflection. As part of my undergraduate studies, University of New South Wales, and I'll call out the department, it was the School of Science and Technology Studies, I think. Um, kind of like philosophy, but not. And I remember a lecturer giving a series of lectures attempting to drive a wedge between it's bizarre to me now as I, as I say it, attempting to drive a wedge between scientific discovery and technological progress. He was trying to make the case that these two things were quite independent and that we shouldn't um, thank science and scientists for everything the engineers were doing, that these were two quite separate things and they could be separated out. Uh, and, of course, this person was a relativist and uh, they wanted to kind of... Uh, cut science down to size as being just another narrative. But of course, as we know, the, the best way to defend against relativism, postmodernism, anti-science types is to show them that it works. Now, this lecturer was willing to just go the whole hog and say, well, no, it doesn't work. Technology has nothing to do with science. Of course, it's completely unreasonable, irrational. I can't remember precisely what the arguments were, probably because there were no actual arguments there. It was just a bunch of assertions. And so um, here, this is reminiscent of, of that idea that, that individual inventors, individual scientists aren't doing anything particularly amazing. It's just a natural outworking of the kind of human evolutionary process. The memes just appear. Um, but that's not true. Um, you, and you do hear this, that the, um, the, the history of science is not a history of heroic endeavours. Of course, of course, everyone knows the quip that if, as Newton said, 
if I have seen further, it's because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. Um, but Newton himself was a great giant, greater than the giants that preceded him, in large part. Yes, he used the work of Galileo and Kepler and so forth. However, he made advances that were far and away more advanced than what his predecessors did. We really can point to certain people throughout history that have made substantially greater contributions in science and technology than others. It's not always a hugely collaborative process even across time. It is partly a collaborative process, more or less a collaborative process across time. But Newtonian physics was in very large part a product of the mind of Newton. Einstein's theories of relativity were very much largely a product of his mind. Yes, he was solving problems that other physicists had already put out there, but that does not detract from the fact that overwhelmingly we can attribute the discoveries of Einstein to Einstein, to Einstein. Okay, um, let's keep on going. David writes, but that distinction between evolution and heroic inventors as being the agents of discovery makes sense only in a static society. There, most change is indeed brought about in the way that I guess jokes might evolve, with no great creativity being exercised by any individual participant. But in a dynamic society, scientific and technological innovations are generally made creatively. That is to say, they emerge from individual minds as novel ideas, having acquired significant adaptations inside those minds. Of course, in both cases, ideas are built from previous ideas by a process of variation and selection which, con which constitutes evolution. But when evolution takes place largely within an individual mind, it is not meme evolution. It is creativity by a heroic inventor. Pause there. Just a comment. That's brilliant. That is a brilliant retort to for anyone out there at university, um, perhaps, or at school, perhaps, who is asked to write essays or whatever um, about this kind of thing, or to if you, if you engage in a philosophical discussion with your friends about this kind of idea, can we really attribute, uh, you know, the, the great man, um, what is it, vision of history? Well, the great man or the great person, vision of science. Is it the case that it's always just this cooperative effort by groups of scientists working together or their memes just coming together and creating this thing? No, rarely. That is probably more the exception. If you can point to specific theories, named theories, it's usually the product of an individual heroic inventor. Evolution by natural selection really was a discovery and advance by Charles Darwin. Even though there were other people who got the idea, who contributed things here and there, he really did take that biggest leap. And that is the lesson. That is typically the rule, not the exception, for, for these big grand theories, these big grand discoveries. Okay, I'm skipping um, a little more about Susan Blackmore <laughs> and... Um, the criticism of her idea. I think this will come up again later. And I'm just going to pick it up where David writes. Another thing that should make us suspicious is the presence of the conditions for anti-rational meme evolution, such as deference to authority, static subcultures, and so on. 
Anything that says, because I say so, or it never did me any harm, anything that says, let us suppress criticism of our ideas because it is true, suggests static society thinking. We should examine and criticise laws, customs and other institutions with an eye to whether they set up conditions for anti-rational memes to evolve. Avoiding such conditions is the essence of Popper's criterion. Popper's criterion being the ease with which we can remove bad ideas. Going on, David writes, The Enlightenment is the moment at which explanatory knowledge is beginning to assume its soon-to-be-normal role as the most important determinant of physical events. At least it could be. We had better remember that what we are attempting, the sustained creation of knowledge, has never worked before. Indeed, everything that we shall ever try to achieve from now on will never have worked before. We have, so far, been transformed from the victims and enforcers of an eternal status quo into the mainly passive recipients of the benefits of relatively rapid innovation in a bumpy transition period. We now have to accept and rejoice in bringing about our next transformation to active agents of progress in the emerging rational society and universe. Pause there. The end of the chapter. There we go, the end of chapter 15. And I really have to go back because that's a powerful way to end this particular chapter. That first sentence of this last paragraph, David says, the enlightenment is the moment at which explanatory knowledge is beginning to assume its soon to be normal role as the most important determinant of physical events. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. It's one of these um, claims, true, in the beginning of infinity, that has really hooked many people um, who've read the book. After all, if you're interested in physics and you've studied physics and you look out in there into the universe, even just to planet Earth, you notice that natural phenomena are the things that shape physical reality and physical events. Why, and I, uh, very early on in uh, this series, I, 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 some episodes ago even, I showed a picture of Sydney Harbour, and you look at Sydney Harbour, and yes, a large part of Sydney Harbour appears the way that it does because of weathering and erosion. The fall of rainfall over millions of years has carved out rivers and harbours and hills and mountains and so on. Natural forces have done that. Gravity has done that. The reason why a galaxy looks the way that it does. Gravity, gas and thermodynamics. Uh, the reason why the solar system looks the way that it does. Again, gravity, balls of gas being pulled into spheres and so on. But at some point in the future, the rest of physical reality is going to be the way that it is because people have chosen to do stuff with that matter that otherwise would not have come about without creative thought. The New York skyline looks the way that it does in very small part because of natural events. It is now explanatory knowledge which is changing the entire structure of Manhattan, of the island of Manhattan. And so true of any large city. Soon it will be the entire world, from there the solar system, the galaxy, and then it will soon be normal for the overwhelming majority of what we, humans, people into the distant future, can see throughout the distant cosmos will be 
explicable only in terms of what people have chosen to do <laughs> in the universe. It will look a certain way, it will look different to the way that it does if it otherwise would have done under the action purely of deterministic physical laws. Creativity will be the explanation as to why it looks the way that it does. Okay, next we're on to chapter 16, the evolution of creativity, where we will pick up those ideas and explore them even more about the consequences and the significance of human creativity and what people are and how they are cosmically significant. Until then, see you later. As always, thanks for any support on Patreon or PayPal. Whether you're an audio listener or whether you watch this on YouTube, thank you very much for your support. Bye-bye.